Welcome to Brain Ignition Radio. Here I share with you all of the knowledge and resources I've gained as it relates to nutrition, exercise, and brain health. By sharing these interesting case studies, in-depth discussions, and research, I hope that we can learn together and improve our current health and the health of future generations. I'm your host, Chet Binning, and I thank you for tuning in. Welcome everyone, thank you for tuning in. Today I'm gonna review my personal lab work for you guys. I'm gonna go over all of the different markers I looked at, everything from hormones to minerals like magnesium and vitamin D, some markers of inflammation and liver health. And the goal with today's episode is regardless of whether or not you've had this done, doesn't matter. We're gonna talk about what each of these mean And as always, you guys are going to get a ton of benefit from this and learn how you can actually apply some of these things to your daily lifestyle to support and optimize your health. So this is something I've been wanting to do for a really long time. I finally bit the bullet and took the time to do it. I had this done with a naturopath. You can try getting this from your medical doctor. Some people have more success than others. I was not so lucky in the past when I tried this. However, it's 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 still worth a shot because for a lot of people, it will be cheaper to do so, at least if you're someone living in Canada. Um, if you're elsewhere, I'm, I'm not sure how things work. But if you are in Canada, best to at least try with your family practitioner, um, if you're able and interested, at least ask first. And then if you're not able to have that done through them, well, then you can then go to a a, a naturopath and have it done. Or maybe you just want to do it the other way around. That's cool too. Um, If you do have benefits, obviously I don't know everyone's individual situation, but I do know that just working with people, many people are able to get this covered Um, even if it is through a naturopath. So just something to keep in mind. I'm not here to tell anyone whether they should or should not get it or what they should get done. This is just to really help us in understanding how some of these things work, what we can do to modulate them. And then if you are interested afterwards, you'll at least now have learned how to go about things. And I think regardless, it's just cool to, I mean, really look at quite literally what is going on in your body. There's not really anything else that allows us to do that. We feel all these different things day in and day out and maybe wonder what the hell is going on. But this is actually like a snapshot of specifically what is happening in our body. So it's, it's pretty cool, I think. So the first thing on the analysis was white blood cells and red blood cells. We're not going to spend really any time on these at all because it's quite nuanced. And it's one of those things that you're really not going to see much of a difference here. And if you do, then usually that's, I don't want to say cause for concern, but it it, it is usually a reason to look into some things because it suggests that there's maybe some actual things going on that you want to uh, dig into a little bit deeper. So um, yeah, we're not going to spend a a ton of time on these. The one thing I will say is that the, the white blood cells, 
I mean, in general, you kind of want those to be relatively low because this suggests that your immune system is kind of quiet, which we want, right? We don't want this overstimulated immune system that would suggest we're in this inflammatory condition, which calls these white blood cells into action. And if we're constantly calling on them because we have inflammation, we know that's not a good thing. So we want things to be pretty calm, pretty quiet. And so you want to see those low, but otherwise not a whole lot to discuss there. The next marker though, pretty interesting. It's called gamma glutamyltransferase or for short GGT. So this is a marker of oxidative stress in the liver, other tissues, but uh, primarily the liver. So in essence, what this is a marker of is the health of your liver. It, it tells us how much toxicity, if you will, the liver has to cope with. So to give you an example, if you just finished a weekend bender or even one night of drinking, this would be through the roof because this enzyme is one that regenerates glutathione. This is a natural antioxidant in the body that's concentrated in the liver. So every time you pass something through the liver to be metabolized, such as alcohol, that creates oxidative stress and that requires glutathione to then cope with that oxidative stress. And so the more of this enzyme we have, the harder the liver is working. And typically seeing this elevated, unless we've, for instance, just done something like that, drinking, um, even a hard workout can elevate it. Unless there's something like that, we want this to be low. So the range here, at least for my Canadian friends, again, I can't speak to the exact numbers that other countries use, but at least for those of you in Canada, the range here, which is given by Life Labs is 14 to 62. And that's U per L. I don't actually know what that one stands for. And I was at nine. So this was actually flagged as low. Um, but that's a good thing. I mean, you want this to be low. That suggests that the liver is, is, is not being overly taxed. So I was happy to see this, um, of course, because I do exercise a lot, which can create oxidative stress. Um, and believe it or not, there is such thing as too much, but I do include adequate micronutrients that at least hypothetically would support this. So amino acids like glutamine, I supplement glutamine. Uh, sometimes I supplement glycine as well. These are two amino acids that are actually required to make glutathione in the body. Oftentimes I'll often, uh, sorry, also take a little bit of vitamin C first thing in the morning. And just with, you know, eating whole foods, I, I was hoping this would kind of be on the lower end and, uh, it, it was, so that was nice to see. So if you are someone who maybe sees this elevated, what are some things you can do? Well, you obviously look at the, the 
obvious things, smoking, alcohol, stress, those are all going to elevate it. I would also look at the quality of your food. So if you're eating a lot of processed foods, you're probably not getting a lot of the fat soluble vitamins, particularly A, E, D, and K. These ones are really important for antioxidant functions throughout the body and supporting the liver. So you want to make sure you're getting enough of these. And then something like milk thistle actually has a lot of clinical data to show that it supports the liver. So it can actually help regenerate cells in the liver. So next up was cholesterol. This is another thing I'd, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because the cholesterol story is an absolute nightmare. It is super interesting, but I know that I can't do it justice. There's some incredible podcasts out there who do a deeper dive on this, but it's, it's just, it's just not something that's worth us digging into right now. There's so many unknowns and in, instead of us just guessing and debating, um, we're going to focus on the things that we do know. Now I will say that my levels were not what most people would expect here. So this is the one thing I will touch on. So we hear this thing about, or this discussion about cholesterol all the time, right? Limit your saturated fat, limit your cholesterol. It's not good for your heart. It's not good for the cardiovascular system. Like I said, this is, it's, it's, it's such a mess. There's so many beliefs and contradictions out there and it's just hard to keep track of. But the interesting thing with this is that it's not even well known if diet impacts your cholesterol. And my results were a perfect example of this. So if we look at the recommended daily intake, one egg, one whole egg gives you about 62% of your recommended daily cholesterol. I mention this because I consume at least three eggs a day, often more, probably about five days a week. So I'm eating a ton of eggs. And so even just based on that, I'm way over the daily limit. Now add to that the fact that I eat red meat, I mean, probably five times a week, sometimes more. I eat yogurt, I eat cheese, oftentimes whole milk. Those are more sources of cholesterol. I eat butter, dark chocolate, coconut oil is going to give us some cholesterol. So my percent of daily cholesterol intake, I don't know. It's, I mean, it's probably close to six, seven, maybe a thousand percent of the recommended daily intake. I'm not really sure, but as it turns out, HDL and LDL were both kind of low. My LDL was low, so it was, um, nowhere near what we would consider high at all. Um, in fact, the, the, the doctor said it was, it was quite low and I'm not going to say this is a good thing. Um, because again, we, we just don't know, but just to back up, pardon me, LDL would be what we commonly hear referred to as quote unquote, bad LDL. So this is the type of protein. It's a protein that packages cholesterol in your liver and ships it away from your liver. So I think of it as like a boat or a car. It's a boat or a car. 
that allows you to transport cholesterol throughout the body because cholesterol is a fat. It doesn't like water, which is what it has to travel through essentially. And so it has to go into this boat or this ship to carry it through. So LDL is quote unquote bad. HDL is also a boat or a ship, but it returns cholesterol to the liver and it's called good. So my LDL was low. HDL is the one that we call high, which, you know, very confusing because if you look at the research, most things that get touted as quote unquote heart healthy because they lower cholesterol also lower HDL, but no one ever talks about that. But anyways, uh, my HDL was 1.32 millimoles per liter. So this could actually be higher. Um, so the point here is that despite consuming copious amounts of cholesterol and saturated fat, my cholesterol were actually low. And in fact, I might want to work to get my at least HDL a little bit higher. So we'll leave it at that. And then triglycerides. So this would be another type of fat, of course. This is more of a energy source, if you will. So after you eat a meal containing fat, you're going to have triglycerides in your blood. But as is the case with energy in our bloodstream, so this goes for sugar or glucose, we don't want to have it high for too long. So at the time of when I got this assessment, I was approximately 12 hours fasted. So my last meal was about 12 hours the night before. And so you would really want at that time your triglycerides to be low. And mine were, um, so that was good. They were, let's see, I might have scrolled by it here. So they were 0.64 millimoles per liter. So that's, that's pretty good. Um, you want them to be like well below 1.4 with this one, because it's just a single snapshot, it's, it's not the best indicator because of, of, of course, the more time you have after a meal, the more that's going to change, right? This marker is going to change. And so there's a couple things that I wish I would have added here. Um, HbA1c would be one. This is a long-term snapshot of your average blood sugar, better than just a single marker of blood sugar, because blood sugar, like triglyceride, is gonna respond to each and every single thing we do, which means the time that you get that blood drawn or what you did before or even leading up to that event is going to have a really strong impact. I mean, if, if you were stressed on the way to the clinic to get your blood drawn, this could increase your cortisol. This could increase your blood sugar. So this is one of those markers where it's nice to look at long-term. Now triglycerides, we, we, I'm not aware of a more long-term marker, but I, I'm just saying it'd be nice to kind of elaborate on markers of energy handling, if you will. HSCRP. This is one of the most important ones on here, guys. Um, if you ever have the opportunity to measure this, that would be incredible, especially if you suspect any type of health issues. And I mean, this could even be minor, right? 
let's say you have joint pain, headaches, fatigue, trouble sleeping, any type of nagging issue, it's very possible that inflammation is a contributing factor and this would pick up on that. Make sure you get HSCRP, which stands for high sensitivity C-reactive protein instead of just plain old CRP. As you might've guessed, HSCRP is more sensitive and is better able to tell us the amount of inflammation that we have throughout our body. So I was also happy to see that mine was very, very low. It was 0, 0.0, sorry, 0 0.43 milligrams per liter. So that's really good. Optimal would be to have that below one and, and you know, well below one is great. This one I was, um, I was really happy with this one because I'm fully aware that working out and working out too much can increase this and that's not necessarily a good thing. I work out a lot more than is needed to be healthy. I know that I do it because I love it. I'm passionate about it. Um, I want to be competitive. And so it was nice to see that I'm still doing a healthy amount. If I had this assessed, and I saw this at, you know, one or even higher, I'd probably take a step back and go like, whoa, uh, you know, what am I doing? I, I, I need to change some things here. Um, so it was, it was, it was nice to see that. I don't know what else I was going to add there. Sorry. I left you hanging. So very good to see that one. But like I said, um, can give us a lot of clues, especially if you suspect some other things. Now it is important to note that if you have some extra weight, extra fat, and you lose that, this will automatically decrease. No questions asked. Even if you decrease that body fat percentage with a Twinkie diet. So I hope this, this helps you understand our fat loss series a little bit more because that was one of the things we discussed. It was that even if you decrease body fat percent with unhealthy foods, your body is still going to be healthier after that, regardless of the foods that you used. Now, obviously there's, there's more to that conversation, which we dug into, but just to highlight that having extra body fat is inflammatory to the body. And so if you lose that, regardless of how you do it, that's going to improve inflammation in the body up to a certain point. Of course, we know that getting down to one or 2% body fat is, is really unhealthy, not sustainable, but, um, you can do it just for, you know, a couple of hours, which people do for a show and whatnot. Now, the thing about HSCRP is if it is high, it can explain a lot of other things. So if you have any type of hormonal issues, that could be men or women, inflammation is, is going to be a factor. It influences testosterone. So with testosterone, it will actually encourage your testosterone to be converted into estrogen. This is because inflammation elevates an enzyme called aromatase, which converts that testosterone into estrogen. Women, on the other hand, 
it can do one of two things. It can elevate your estrogen to too high of levels or it can dysregulate your estrogen. So there's lots of different kinds of estrogen. It can increase the types of estrogen we don't want to have a lot of and prevent you from having adequate amounts of the type that we do want. And so this can explain symptoms associated with things like estrogen dominance, whether that be irregular menstrual cycles or hormonal acne or PCOS or many of these things. And so this marker right here, so super helpful. So what can we do to support this? You can do these things without knowing your marker guys. You don't necessarily have to get this checked. Low processed foods. We know this is really important. I will keep harping on this for as long as I have to. Gut health. These often go hand in hand. As we discussed in the fat loss series, part three, ingredients in processed foods, such as emulsifiers, actually damage the mucosal lining of our gut, thus impairing our gut, which can thus increase inflammation. And there's lots of other examples of this. Adequate minerals are going to support healthy inflammation throughout your body. So things like magnesium, zinc, other micronutrients, omega-3. If you've been listening to me for a while, you're probably sick of this by now, but consuming adequate omega-3, really important for healthy levels of inflammation. Exercising, but not too much. So if you are someone who lives a healthy life, really adequate about exercise and fitness, but you see that this is high, or maybe you have some of those other symptoms of excess inflammation, Maybe you want to look at your volume, make sure you're taking adequate rest days and then stress. If we have high stress, this also will elevate inflammation. Those really work hand in hand. Couple more hormones now, testosterone and free testosterone. So my testosterone was, it was pretty good. Um, 25.8 nanomoles per liter. So that would be on the higher end of the spectrum, but this doesn't uh, really tell us a ton because a lot can happen to this testosterone. So free testosterone, which I also had measured is thought to be a little bit more useful. This is the testosterone that is free and available to bind to receptors so that it can create those downstream effects of testosterone. So I was at kind of the I guess what you would call the mid range of this. So the range is 196 to 636 P mole per liter. I was at 383. Now the thing I will say about this and all hormones is that sometimes the actual number is not the be all end all. And this goes specifically for hormones. So just think back to insulin, leptin, some of these other hormones we've talked about, cortisol would be another issue. Sometimes it's not an issue with the actual hormone. It's an issue with the receptor. Take insulin, for instance. We know that sometimes we can have insulin resistance 
which is not necessarily a problem with the actual hormone insulin itself. It's its ability to bind to its receptors and then create that downstream response. So simply, it's not always about the key. Sometimes it's about the locks that those keys go into and how well those keys fit into those locks. So the reason I say this is because I feel pretty good. Um, I kind of beat the crap out of my body in the gym and my recovery is awesome. I have absolutely no complaints there. Um, I, I feel like I can keep pushing myself over and over. Still seeing progress in the gym, still getting stronger. All of these things and more, as you know, there's lots of other things that testosterone does are pretty good indicators of healthy testosterone function. So the point is here, I'm, I'm not going to be like a, a bro and be like, oh man, like what the hell? I wish I was at it. I should be at a thousand here. Like, let's get that number up to a thousand. I should be, you know, walking around with even more chest hair than I already have a bigger beard, deeper voice. I want more testosterone. It's not like that. So my point here is that I don't have any of the symptoms of any issues whatsoever with testosterone. And so we have to take that into consideration. So if you or someone you know has a hormone number that they're not happy with, but they do not have any, any of the symptoms that would be associated with impairments to that hormone, well, then it's probably not an issue. So food for thought, uh, something to consider. Now, that being said, still going to give you guys some really effective tools for this. There's so many different things we can do for testosterone and hormones in general. Women, some of these things you can benefit from as well. So don't think that I'm just talking to the guys here. So having healthy levels of sex hormone binding globulin is going to be important for both men and women. As it sounds, this is a globulin which binds our sex hormones. And so one of the things that's important for this balance or this relationship is magnesium. So if we talk about testosterone, magnesium frees testosterone from sex hormone binding globulin so that that testosterone can then go bind to a, a, a lock. Zinc and vitamin D are another are other big factors. And this goes for both men and women. These are both critical for sex hormone function. And I was going to say, you know, one in particular, but honestly, they're both equally important. So I, I couldn't pick one or the other. I did get my vitamin D measured. Um, we'll go over that in a minute. And then lots of the other holistic approaches, if you will. So I'm talking about things like inflammation, insulin sensitivity, and stress. Because high inflammation will lower testosterone. It will disrupt estrogen. High insulin and high blood sugar will do the same. Low cholesterol is also an interesting point here. Cholesterol is required to make sex hormones. And so if your cholesterol is really, really low, or maybe you're someone who's been using a statin, 
this will impair your sex hormones. And so with me, perhaps maybe if I was to elevate my cholesterol a little bit, which I might work on, maybe this would bump up my testosterone. Who knows? It's, it's something for me to experiment with. And stress is the one of the most important things yet again. So if we focus on specifically testosterone, testosterone actually has, and specifically, I think this is really concentrated in your testes, has an enzyme that actually protects it from excess stress and cortisol. I don't remember the name of it, but you guys can look that up. This is just to show that high cortisol, not a good thing. It's, it's really this um, close relationship. So if we have high stress all the time, this will tank testosterone. So if we are undersleeping, overtraining, undereating, this will tank it. Same thing for females. If we're doing all those things, undersleeping, too much stimulants, overtraining, this will really disrupt sex hormones as well. And oftentimes we will also see um, loss of period too. Now, some other things for these sex hormones, boron. Really, really good data showing that supplemental boron supports testosterone. I've used boron on and off for the past maybe two-ish years, um, but I haven't used it in, it's been a while, maybe six months. So just thinking out loud now, maybe this would be another interesting thing to try a, a quote-unquote cycle of. Maybe I shouldn't call it a cycle because it's just a mineral. It's not like something synthetic that I'm poking into my butt cheek. Just a trace mineral, hard to get from diet, but has been shown to elevate testosterone if it is low. And I mean, we don't really get much boron in diet. Fat-soluble vitamins. So that's the AEDK again. You can check out where to get those. I'm already getting a lot of those though, so I don't suspect that would be an issue. You can look at aromatase. If you are highly stressed, really inflamed, you suspect or have extra, extra sorry, body fat, you might want to look at things that mitigate aromatase and then sleep and stress, of course. Okay, so I also had insulin measured. Again, not the best metric. Um, I wish I would have used what's called C-peptide. <coughs> Excuse me. C-peptide gives us more of a, a long-term snapshot of insulin because again, insulin, like some of these other hormones we've discussed, is pulsatile, which means it's strongly influenced by things we do on a daily basis, which means that it really fluctuates, which means that when we get it tested and what we did leading up to that is really gonna strongly influence this. But that being said, still a good result here. The reference range would be 20 to 180 p-mole per liter. You want this to be low, especially if you are fasted. I was 12 hours fasted. I was pretty low, 28. So on the lower end of the range, that's good. That is a marker of insulin sensitivity. Now that's good because I do consume a lot of protein, a lot of carbohydrates. Some people would say that that elevates insulin. And it does immediately thereafter, 
but that's not the problem. The problem is if your body cannot lower it. So if it stays high for long periods of time and if you're constantly elevating it. And so having that low, especially after a fast, really good thing. But again, C-peptide would be better. Cortisol, another one, doesn't tell us a lot because cortisol is diurnal, which means that it greatly fluctuates throughout the day. And so yet again, a single snapshot in time doesn't really tell us a lot. Now that being said, um, in general, so pardon me, cortisol, this is a stress hormone. This would be released by your adrenal glands in response to stress. You want this to be high early in the morning because that helps wake you up. It's part of what's called the cortisol awakening response. This actually also has really important benefits for our immune system. So it can kill um, um, thyroid antibodies, for instance, which we do not want excessive amounts of. So the point here is that you want high cortisol in the morning, you want low cortisol at nighttime. If you can't get to sleep, maybe your cortisol is high. And we'll talk about what you can do for that. So mine was 177 nanomoles per liter. The range here would be 135 to 537. Now this one was kind of tough to assess because I said you want it high in the morning, right? I got this in the morning, mine wasn't high. However, I did this test at 8.43 a.m. And at this time, I was basically daily getting up by 5.30 a.m. Um, or I should say Benson was getting me up. And so it's possible that my cortisol had already come down because this is more than three hours after waking. So not sure, tough to say here, but still something that, um, you know, I can experiment with. So for cortisol, this is actually why another reason I should say why I use some vitamin C first thing in the morning, because vitamin C is required to make cortisol. And I know that I'm using up a lot of vitamin C because of the amount of exercise I do. So vitamin C is one of those uh, nutrients that's also going to help the body cope with oxidative stress, which we know we accumulate from a lot of exercise and hard training. And so that's something I've been experimenting with. Um, I get lots of light first thing in the morning. I, I do feel, I feel really good waking up most mornings, the majority of the time. So I was, yeah, so this is, it's, it's just kind of something for me to uh, keep in mind. I think it personally, it'd be good to do a four point assessment. So look at cortisol at four different points throughout the day, just to really hone in and see if in fact, my cortisol is low because this would be something to improve on if it is low. But again, hard to say, not really sure because it was several hours after waking. So what can we do to modulate this or improve this if we're having some issues? Well, lots of things here. First off, you know if you're stressed, if you're excessively stressed. And so that's going to be a priority. So what can we do for that? 
Well, many of the things we've already mentioned in this episode, making sure you're not overtraining if you are an athlete. So ensuring that you have adequate rest days because not doing so will elevate cortisol. Making sure you consume enough calories. That's a big one. This is a really big problem with weight loss diets and strategies, if you will, is that people hardcore restrict calories and they do it for long periods of time. But this is stressful to the body. When you restrict calories, this is going to increase stress and increase cortisol. We do not want this to be high for long periods of time. So if you see your cortisol is high and it's not the morning, so let's say you're at, I mean, whatever, like 500 nanomoles per liter or more middle of the day or beyond, that is a big concern because that suggests that your body is stressed and you need to deal with this. And as it relates to weight loss, we know that excessively high cortisol will break down our muscle and it will promote fat retention. So it's going to make it harder for you to lean out. And then other micronutrients are important too. Magnesium again, zinc again, omega-3 again, adequate fat yet again. So healthy fats that are going to give you those A, E, D, and K. And then the other things that go hand in hand with stress, like the inflammation and the insulin and so on that we've already gone over. Vitamin D. This was another really interesting one to me. And this is, I mean, especially right now with everything's going on, this is also one of the most important markers here. So the range is 75 to 250 nanomoles per liter. I was at 122. So even though I was within that quote unquote healthy range, still pretty low, you want that to be higher. And this just shows me that or I should say it just supports all of the data showing how deficient in vitamin D people really are because I'm someone who uses vitamin D pretty regularly. I would say my intake up to this time throughout the winter was roughly 10 to 20,000 IUs per week. So now you can just kind of compare and contrast that to what's recommended on bottles or perhaps what you've been taking or what you've been told to be, um, or what you've been told to take. Sorry. I also spend usually at least an hour outside, even in the winter, not that you're getting a ton of vitamin D, but you'll be getting a little bit. And then I'm also consuming lots of vitamin D rich foods. So egg yolks, sometimes cod liver oil. And it, again, not that you get a ton from diet, but it's there. I'm, I'm, I'm eating those. And so even with all of that, pretty low. And so this just goes to show that we really need to do things to support this vitamin D. We need to take more than what's recommended work in these foods, especially if you're someone of darker skin, I would say, I guess I'm a little bit darker skin. And so I, I, I need more vitamin D, but I don't need as much as others who are darker than I am. And vitamin D is going to influence lots of the other things we've already discussed as well, of course. So vitamin D is required to make sex hormones. It's important for the immune system, as you know, and lowers inflammation. It's important for the gut, 
It's important for sleep quality. And so this is a really big one. And it, it just absolutely blows my mind some of the statements that we've been hearing about this, or I should say the lack of, but I'm thinking of one in particular, not to get on a rant, but maybe you guys heard this from, believe it or not, our Minister of Health here in Canada said that in response to a question about the importance of vitamin D, someone very fairly asking why this is not talked about more with the current pandemic, and she quite simply replied, this is fake news, and then had the audacity to go on and even elaborate on that and say that instead of following this, we are data-driven. We follow the science. Be careful. Ignore this fake news. And I just thought, oh my God, this is incredible. I can't believe she's saying this with the amount of data we now have. But anyways, that's a separate discussion. Support your vitamin D. This is a good one to measure. Also for mental health obviously depression, injury prevention. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. And then last but not least, what I had measured was, sorry, that's not the last one. I maybe skipped a couple here. I did. There was a couple others I must have missed. So ferritin, ferritin is the primary form of iron stored within your cells. As we know, iron is important to make hemoglobin, which is a protein found in your red blood cells, which allows them to carry oxygen throughout the body. So obviously very important, but so is the level of ferritin. So we do not want high levels of ferritin, but we also don't, don't want too low because that's going to lead to things like anemia. So uh, as always, it's, it's the amount that's important here. So my level was, I did, I, I went by this. So the range is 22 to 275 micrograms per liters. And mine was 88. So like low to mid range. And this one was interesting because I mean, the doctor was pretty shocked after I told him how much meat I consume, um, which is probably, I mean, I, I'm usually having red meat roughly probably five times a week. I'm having lots of eggs, um, lots of chicken fish. I mean, on average, I'm probably having meat about two, three times per day often. And so one would look at this and say, oh, uh, you know, your iron's going to be way high. That's going to be a big problem. You're getting all this dietary iron. Your body's going to be storing that. Um, that, that that's not good because that iron's going to oxidize and you're going to have health issues. You need to reduce this meat intake. But this just goes to show it's, it's so context dependent. Even though I consume what most people would consider a ridiculous amount, I was on the low end. And this is because your body is, it's really good at getting rid of excess iron. It does not automatically store it. So just because we get a lot in our diet doesn't always mean that it's going to store. Now, what can you guys do to support this? If there is something going on, if it is high, um, give blood. That's probably the easiest, most effective option. 
even with my number, I'm, I'm, I'm still planning on doing this. It's, it's something I've unfortunately not done. I've kind of just put off and put off. Um, I don't like needles. Maybe that's why, but I, it's something I need to do. If you have low iron, you might want to consider heme versus non-heme iron. So heme is typically the type that you would get from animal-based foods. Non-heme would be the type that you would get from plant-based foods. The absorption from plant-based foods, really, really low, about 1% to 15% versus about 15 to 40% from heme sources. So that's something to consider. If you're someone who struggles with anemia and maybe you've been avoiding these perhaps in fear or for other reasons, something to look into. And then your gut health is really important here too, guys. So stomach acid is critical for the absorption of iron. And so if you're someone who's used maybe proton pump inhibitors, or you've had heartburn or acid reflux or some other stomach acid issues, well then you're going to want to look into maybe using some digestive enzymes, maybe like a betaine HCL, and really doing things to support your stomach acid and digestive health, which I think, I mean, everyone should kind of do anyways. And so these are things like being relaxed as best as possible for as many meals as possible, especially the larger ones. It's using those digestive enzymes if necessary something like enzymatic control from atp labs is really effective i will actually use this from time to time if i'm eating in a rush using bitters this is another thing that i do that i kind of forget i do so bitters are a type of food which naturally supports stomach acid production so a classic example would be eating radishes with your meal. So I'll often have some radishes with my, my, my red meat at breakfast. Um, other examples would be artichokes, arugula, black coffee's a bitter, and there's some other examples, grapefruit. And then the other one that I missed before we get to magnesium, which will be the last one is TSH. So thyrotropin stimulating hormone. Maybe you've heard of TSH. Um, this is your thyroid hormone or it's one of your thyroid hormones. These are really important for metabolism throughout your entire body. Now, this is not only metabolism of energy and calories. It's also metabolism of things like hair, skin, nails, basically everything that grows in your body and changes over time is going to be impacted by your thyroid. Your other sex hormones too are impacted by your thyroid. If we look at something like hypothyroidism, which is low thyroid, the classic symptoms of this are thinning of the hair and loss of hair, loss of especially the outer third of your eyebrow because your body will ditch that first. It doesn't really care about it dry skin, brittle nails, low mood and depression and fatigue. These are other classic symptoms and low sex drive. This would be another example as well. So TSH, this is another one on here on its own. Doesn't really tell us anything. I knew that going into it. I didn't really care. I wasn't concerned about this one. Cause again, I didn't have any of these symptoms. I was, 
2.09 MIU per liter. Again, I'm not sure off the top of my head what that stands for, but the range here is 0.32 to 4.0. I was at 2.09, so right in the middle. Now, the reason this doesn't tell us a whole lot is because this is just one of the signals along this pathway. So let's just look at this pathway real quick. So the hypothalamus of your brain, which is that region of your brain that's really important for all the survival mechanisms, it, it has an enormous impact on all of our hormones. It will initiate the release of TSH. So that's part one. This will then lead to release of T4 from your thyroid. And then T4, we want that to be converted into T3. Now, T3 is the important one here. This is what we would call your active thyroid hormone. This is what then goes on to elicit all of those important effects of uh, the thyroid that we talked about. And so without looking at those, this doesn't really tell us much. Now, certainly it, it's, it's, it's not useless. It gives us hints, but the problem I see is that unfortunately there's people who are being diagnosed, even given powerful medications solely based on TSH. And I just think like, I, you know, there's my mind, there's just so much wrong with this that we're not looking into other important markers that might explain this. So it's not a be all end all. So what I mean is, for instance, we might have high TSH or low TSH, but maybe those other markers are fine or vice versa. Maybe those other markers will identify the problem. So what I mean by this is perhaps we have adequate levels of T4, but low levels of T3. Well, this tells us that there's a conversion issue from T4 to T3. And so what can we do? Well, there's important micronutrients that are important for that conversion. Selenium's a big one. Tyrosine's a big one. Iodine's a big one. Maybe people aren't getting this. These aren't very common. We can get selenium from some seafoods. We can get it from yellowfin tuna. Brazil nuts can be a decent source. Iodine, most people cut this out of their diet because it's not often found in foods and it's not in table salt. So if we're not consuming a table salt, probably not getting a lot of iodine. So the point here is that we need to dig a little bit deeper. Another important thing to look at here would be RT3. This is reverse T3 because we can make T3, but if it's converted into reverse T3, it becomes inactive. And if this is the scenario, well, then there's also things we can do to mitigate this, to prevent the body from taking that important T3 and then converting it into the inactive reverse T3. But instead, unfortunately, what we see is kind of this, in my mind, what I would consider premature diagnosis. People are given usually synthetic T4, but if someone has a conversion issue, for instance, of T4 to T3, they're not going to convert that synthetic T4 in that drug into that T3, which is actually what has that effect. So this is just kind of, you know, uh, uh, another thing to look out for. 
And I pause on that because I do think it is one of the more common things that we see nowadays. And then last but certainly not least is magnesium. So importantly, if you are assessing magnesium, make sure it is red blood cell magnesium or RBC magnesium, otherwise known as magnesium erythrocyte. That's because only about 1% of your total body's magnesium is found in your serum, which is what is most often assessed unless you specifically ask for RBC. So the majority of your magnesium is actually found in your red blood cells, making this a more reliable indicator. So the range on this one is 1.65 to 2.52. This one is micromoles per liter. And I was 1.95. So kind of like mid to low, in fact, and I can still, I can still benefit from increasing this one. So this was another one that, you know, I I'm not going to say I was surprised because I know that I'm sensitive to having low magnesium. I know this because if I go periods of time without supplementing high quality magnesium, I feel it. I get restless legs in bed at night. My sleep quality decreases. These would be the biggest things for me, sleep quality, and then some of these muscular symptoms. This might be similar for you. Maybe you're getting some of this, um, but other classic symptoms of magnesium deficiency or even just suboptimal levels, insomnia, headaches are a big one, stress, anxiety, depression, muscle cramping, poor recovery, tolerance to stress and anxiety again, lack of energy. There's so many different possibilities of magnesium. And this, this with HSCRP and vitamin D, I, I think if I had to pick three, those would probably be my, um, in my top three, because it is just so important for so many different things and very commonly deficient nowadays. We know that the research is really strong to show this, especially in certain groups of individuals, particularly postmenopausal women, as high as 80% of postmenopausal women are deficient. And so if you or someone you know is in this category and you're not using a good quality magnesium, try this out. This is something that a lot of people benefit from right away. And so this is another thing I'm, I'm going to experiment with. I already supplement quite a bit of magnesium. I take four capsules of ATP lab Synermag per day in two separate doses because that increases the absorption. So that's quite a bit. Um, but this goes to show that I can benefit from taking even more. Now, I suspect this could be, again, it could be because of the exercise amount. Um, who knows? But in general, with modern living and modern foods, it's really hard to get magnesium from diet. And so all of us are prone to deficiency. And so this is likely why. So we'll end it here, guys. Um, I will say if you are looking for a magnesium, Quality, again, is really important. Stay away from the oxides. Those are crap. You're not going to absorb any. Citrate, it's okay, but you can only take so much without getting diarrhea. And this prevents us from taking the amount that we really need. So look for sources like glycinate, 
malate, malate in, in particular is, is beneficial for getting magnesium into your muscles. Even better if you can find one with added B6 because B6 is required to actually metabolize magnesium. So make sure it's doing its job. And the research shows that clearly when we combine magnesium with B6, it is more effective. There's some good data to show this. And then taurine would be a benefit. So this is why I like Synermag. It has added taurine, which is an amino acid that works synergistically with magnesium. So it lowers cortisol. It also increases GABA in the brain, which is also going to support stress and resilience to stress and sleep quality. And so they really do work together. But that's it for today, guys. Let me know what you think about this one. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you have any questions about this one, please do not hesitate to reach out to me. Really excited for more of the episodes to come in the next weeks. Lots of cool stuff planned for you guys. But that's it for today. I hope you guys have a great day and a healthy week.